ah, the gap year, that teenage rite of passage, away from the family, the freedom to explore different cultures, the great buildings and art of Europe, the food, new friends and fun, and of course, the shopping, one of the better modern inventions, except of course, that it is at least 300 years old. The Grand Tour, as it was originally called in the 18th century, was redefined, repurposed and renamed for later generations and markets, with considerable help from one Thomas Cook. He was the man who gave us tourism, and now thanks to him, we can all become grand tourists. So join us over the next couple of weeks as we look at how those male tourists sampled life abroad, at where they travelled, stayed, and how they experienced life, and at how women got in on the act, and also how the tour became available to all of us. The grand tour certainly had worthy aims. According to Jeremy Black's book, The British and the Grand Tour, it fulfilled a major social need, namely the necessity of finding young men who are not obliged to work and for whom work would be a derogation, something to do between school and the inheritance of family wealth. It allowed the young to sow their wild oats abroad and to keep them out of trouble including disputes with their families at home. The young tourist would then return with a broadened mind, a good command of foreign languages, and a new self-reliance, as well as a highly developed taste and grace of manners. Wow! In reality, the young tourist was probably far more interested in finding a good tailor for some fashionable clothes and snapping up some souvenirs to impress the folks back home, perhaps with a few Italian pictures, like those by some blokes called Titian and Canaletto. Then there was more personal research into whether the fabled Venetian whores really were the most beautiful women in Europe, and whether German beer got you drunk faster than the British variety. During the early 18th century, Europe was largely at peace, so it was a good time for travel. Political, scientific and commercial change was everywhere. We must remember, however, that travel was largely restricted to a group of wealthy, e.g. aristocrats, politicians and people from that background, the poor rarely left their native villages. The idea and expense of visiting foreign parts was viewed by them as equal to our reaction to the oligarchs and super wealthy making trips into orbit to visit the space station. The tour started in Paris, that centre of the civilised world, famed for its sights, culture, fashion and philosophy. Next came Italy, reached by some via Marseille, where they sailed up the coast to Genoa to get to Venice. Others, however, took the more dramatic route of an alpine crossing. Venice was a highlight. Several months were spent there. Some tourists then returned home via Germany and the Low Countries. The more adventurous, such as Byron, went south to Sicily to see Vesuvius and the famed Cave of the Sibyl, Greece 
and the East, e.g. Turkey, were also on the list, and perhaps Spain. The majority, however, returned home via picture-perfect German cities, such as Leipzig, Dresden, Potsdam and Berlin, and then through the Low Countries, Belgium and the Netherlands. But of course, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, and for our intrepid traveller, that meant stepping into a coach to get to a port for Europe. It came as a shock to the English traveller to learn that on the continent, English roads were regarded as good. In Europe, they had the option of buying or hiring a coach for their initial journey. But Europe also had the options of travel by river and also canal, which could be quite luxurious if largely used by the wealthy. There remained the challenge, however, of the constant booking on arrival of rooms to stay. Whatever their choices, coach travel would play a large part in the next few years. Today, we perhaps have an overly romantic view of coach travel. Jolly Christmas cards, TV shows and costume dramas show coaches barreling happily along on our 20th century roads, of course, with scarves flying from rosy-cheeked travellers, smiling and chatting happily. At the destination, the door opens and the window, complete with glass, of course, is rolled down and waving, smiling passengers bid happy goodbyes. Nostalgia is everywhere. But the reality of coach travel was a hell for many to be endured rather than enjoyed. For a start, roads were not macadamized until the early 1800s. When that arrived, it merely provided a surface of stones, tar and sand. Dust still rose. There remained bone-shaking holes and ruts, as well as flooding in winter. Just as bad was the new flying coach, which had steel springs and swayed sickeningly as it roared through the countryside. One of the few remaining, if not the sole survivor, however, of the 18th century coaches is the famous British gold coach, which is used by the British monarch on major state occasions to this day, such as coronations. From King William IV, various kings George and Queens Victoria and Elizabeth, monarchs have endured miserable state processions in it. More modern varieties can be challenging as well. The Duchess of Cambridge is said to have felt so seasick after one recent Trooping the Colour outing that she reverted to a car for her return journey. But back in the 1700s, bodily comfort for the traveller was not a high priority. There were no regular comfort stops either. Women resorted to a garde-loup, basically a sauce-shaped chamber pot. People were not so squeamish in those days. However, throughout the 18th century, the, the, our intrepid traveller had a choice 
between the family coach. Translate that to the family car today. A canary yellow rented post chaise. Translation, a modern taxi. Like a coach, it paid tolls and changed horses at the stages every 10, 10 to 30 miles. It was linked to a system of coaching inns as well, where its two to three occupants were welcome. The stagecoach, the bus of its day, was public transport, but quite expensive from 12 and sixpence outside to a guinea inside the coach. By the mid 18th century, the stagecoach covered its route at five to 11 miles an hour. It usually held four people inside with two hanging onto the box outside and two seated beside the driver. The new flying coach provided speed and thrills. It could cut the London to Manchester route to just three days. There are also, they were also known as God permits as ads with timetables said the service would run God permitting. That was a good motto. Early coach travel offered equal misery and discomfort for all, even royalty. When Prince George, George of Denmark attempted to travel to Petworth in the early 1700s to meet King Charles of Spain, he set out at 6am in the morning by torchlight to Petworth and did not get out of our coaches, save only when they were overturned and stuck in the mire, till we arrived at our journey's end with no food for 14 hours. Ireland benefited from an expanding UK coaching spread. From about mid 18th century, coaches ran from Dublin to Kilkenny, Athlone, Cork and Drogheda. Travellers' remarks are revealing. Every moment we seemed to fly in the air, so much so that it appeared to me a complete miracle that we stuck to the coach. On embarkation at Usher's Quay in Dublin, one passenger eyed up his fellow travellers warily. I go into the coach. Its odours were many and varied and unpleasantly mingled. And its passengers, a half-drunken sailor and an old woman, did not impress with the prospect of a very pleasant journey. But by the 1790s, Ireland had a good choice of public transport. The regular mail coach left its office at the Hibernian Hotel, Dawson Street, Dublin, at 7.45 p.m. for Limerick each evening, and another coach left first thing in the morning. There was also the gig, a light two-wheeled cart or carriage, the post chaise, which offered private hire, the single noddy, essentially the remains of a one-horse chaise, plus of course the bian, the bian coney. These yellow and crimson open, open coaches put Ireland on wheels. Thanks to the man called the creator of the Ryanair of the 19th century. Bianconi, an Italian-Irish entrepreneur, provided affordable 
road travel with his coach service. It started with the Clonmel to Cahar route from his Clonmel base. Passengers rode jaunting car style, protected by oilcloth and occasionally umbrellas, at eight to nine miles an hour, paying one penny farthing per mile. His service grew. Bianconi offered routes to the south, from Clonmel to Tipperary, Limerick and Thurles, from two shillings per trip. Back in England, regular coach stages, when and where horses were changed, allowed a break, a quick breakfast or a rest. Longer trips involved some overnight stays at inns. But when our exhausted and queasy traveller arrived for an overnight or even a shorter visit at an inn, more challenges awaited. Inns are another aspect of 18th century life that we have somewhat romanticised. Now they are welcoming places, centres of local life as pubs or cosy, even luxurious hotels, welcoming, warm, with good food, well-stocked and convivial bars, soft warm beds, to be shared only with a human companion of choice. However, at the early inns, if you were poor, your clothes and choice of transport would influence your welcome. You will be shown, if you are lucky, into the kitchen, where you might get some bread with rancid butter and scraps. Ironically, you were probably safer eating those. If you arrived in a post-chaise and were well-dressed, the landlord would show you into the parlour. But whilst the food might be plentiful, it was high risk. Meat might have been reheated and kept for so long that it was positively dangerous. Vegetables and soup were deemed the safest choice. Butter was often rancid, and the milk and cream were definitely not stored in any fridge. Of course, you might not even have time to eat your meal. It was often produced just as the coach horn sounded for departure. It was then whisked away for the next customer. Even if you had your own carriage, don't think that the dinner table was any safer. Overnight guests would be shown upstairs and specially ordered and newly delivered food produced. Again, high risk. Your bed wasn't entirely safe either. Travellers were advised to sleep in their clothes, as sheets were often damp. Damp sheets were noted as frequent causes of death in some obituaries. The damp did not, however, deter fleas, lice or bedbugs. There was a free alarm clock call. 4 a.m. Coach in sounded when the first coach of the day left the yard. Early innkeepers were determined to make their money and were treated with care by travellers because, of course, some were in touch with the most famous travellers on 18th century roads, highwaymen. Inns were ideal for background information on travellers. Your luggage, your spending habits, clothes and personality said much about you, 
which is often relayed to a highwayman by a landlord or staff member. Add that to the local knowledge of secluded wooded areas and thickets, and you had the ideal spot for a robbery. Coachmen were changed every 50 miles, so a sympathetic driver might be exchanged for an ally of a gang. Bath Spa, on the busy Bristol to London route, was infamous for its highwaymen, or Knights of the Road, as they were called. As well as the spa, Bath was, of course, well known for its gaming tables and mobile visitors, plus their cash. Mail coach robberies were also common, and a John Palmer of Bath was inspired to set up the first mail, mail coach in 1782. The mail stayed in a locked box under the coach. A guard travelled with the coach. And increasingly speedy, these meant for meant few robberies occurred. But you could still encounter surprises. The most famous coach was the Quicksilver, fastest in the hand in the land, and used on the Falmouth to London run. However, on one occasion in 1816, in Wiltshire, an escaped lion from a travelling menagerie leapt on one of the horses. Fortunately, the owner's son arrived to provide some diversion. We don't know what happened to the horse. Somerset and Wiltshire had wooded areas and thickets in those days, which provided ideal cover for highwaymen. After the notorious Hampstead Heath, Bath's hilly scenery, especially Lansdowne and Brassknocker Hills, were well known to be hotspots for highwaymen. Highwaymen soon acquired a reputation for being gallant gentlemen. In the 1660s, some highwaymen came from families who had been on the wrong side in the Civil War and were left landless and penniless. However, robbery was an equal opportunity form of work. And unemployed soldiers who were good shots and riders produced ideal highwaymen and they entered their work with enthusiasm, some gambling their takings on tables in Bath. Skill with disguise was vital. It could protect your identity and enhance your chances. One Thomas Simpson, nicknamed Old Mob, often wore women's clothes, whether from choice as a career move, we don't really know. He had a tolerable good face, and attended tables, flirted and giggled enticingly. One lord was so taken with old mob that he, promoted, that he proposed that they get to know each other better in more secluded surroundings. But when old mob stopped the lordly coach on its way home, the pair had very different plans for any off-road action. What a plague's the meaning of your wearing breeches, madam, was the astonished query about unexpected underwear. Nothing but to put your money in, came the reply as a pistol clicked against the lordly ear. Highwaymen lived hard and often died young. Many gruesome skeletons dangled from scaffolds on coaching routes, 
They were hanged at the spot. You were advised to make a will before your journey. Well, anything could happen, from a wheel falling off your coach to being overturned in a rut in the road and promptly robbed by highwaymen. Legends have grown up around these English knights of the road. And one of the most famous was Claude Duval. It would come as quite a shock to many to learn that he was, in fact, French. Born into a poor family in Normandy, his early work brought Claude into contact with the aristocracy, and he quickly learned finesse and good manners. He swiftly rose to positions in which he could practice his skills and found that he could make a good living relieving people of their possessions. Famed for his gallantry and good looks, he won female hearts. One painting shows him requesting a dance with a lady on a coach he had stopped rather than robbing her husband. Duval, like so many highwaymen, was eventually caught and hanged in London. He is thought to have been buried at St Paul's Church, Covent Garden, and his memorial reads, Here lies Duval, reader if male thou art, look to thy purse, if female thy heart. Much havoc was he made of both for all, men he made to stand, and women to fall. There were other variations from the norm of robbery, and the Cheryl gang was unique. In deepest Wiltshire woods near Bath, a group of lads decided to startle passengers into submission by robbing them as naked highwaymen, but for a few daubs of paint. They aimed for shock and awe. They inspired extreme irritation. This was England. Rain, wind and cold were followed by more rain, wind and cold. The prospect of being held up by a coughing, sneezing, naked man was insupportable. Something must be done. And it was. Local patrols helped. But the real change came with increasing social advances. Land enclosures, the arrival of rail travel, and an effective police service all helped. So did the prosecution of landlords with links to highwaymen. Perhaps the most powerful was increasingly cashless travel with the new checks and promissory notes. All of these helped the gradual demise of the highwaymen and the Cheryl gang. Well, they faded away into the remaining thickets, but their legend and a painting of them remains as one of their hideouts, the Black Horse Inn at Cheryl in Wiltshire. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. But back to our grand tourists. Their coach journey is finally over and London has been reached. Now for the next stage, getting your letters of introduction, your passport and sailing bookings organised. By the mid 18th century, banks were developing their role and cash was no longer undisputed king. Promissory notes, essentially documents from banks bearing the words, I promise to pay the bearer the sum of whatever, were increasingly popular and a sensible choice for foreign travel. The City of London then as now was a major financial centre. Some of the oldest banks in the world, such as Coots and also Hoare's, were then as now established. So with your travel finance and resources settled, you could consider your next step, establishing your national identity. Passports, as we now know them, became vital and required really only World War, really only after World War I. But freedom of movement passes were available in England to both British and foreign travellers long before that. It is thought that the word passport derived from the French term passe porte, pass through the gate literally enter the walled city or town. In a practical sense, when neither you nor the armed guard at the gate of a foreign city might be able to speak each other's language, well, written proof of your identity was just sensible. They were expensive. Round about mid 19th century, they cost at least a thousand pounds. Especially wary or nervous travellers sometimes included a doctor in their travel group. There was a good chance that at a time of illness or war, and there were no international news services or alerts in those days, well, a doctor could be a good investment. In those days, there was a choice. Aside from surgeons, former barbers, you could pick from an apothecary who mixed and prepared drugs, or a physician who prescribed drugs. As the years passed, the training of both developed and later both became acknowledged routes to practicing the art of medicine. In the 18th century, however, the chance of a grand tour trip with its varied medical experiences was welcome. The vital member of your traveling party, oh, and you might also have a servant in tow, was what was jokingly called a bear leader. The phrase came from a pun on the Middle Ages figure, a leader of performing bears, who traveled from village to village, keeping his troublesome charges on a lead. The comparison produced endless jokes. The Grand Tour Bear Leader was a mixture of tour leader, advisor, tutor, guardian and guide, plus translator. 
Some bear leaders were impoverished clergy and advised on the delights and especially the dangers of Europe. The latter, of course, keenly awaited by the young traveller. Next came the preparation for the crossing to France, which in the 18th century was viewed as dangerous, as well as uncomfortable and unpleasant. The English Channel ranged over 150 miles to just nine miles in width. And competition for passengers was strong. In London's Royal Exchange, traders offered London to Calais, Dunkirk and Boulogne by water in a bark or cutter. This one masted ship with square rigged sails could cover the journey in 16 to 20 hours. Passage was one guinea. The most popular routes were the shortest, especially the Dover-Calais route. The packet, named for the earlier Paquette boat, carried the mail and had become a well-organised, well-priced form of travel with luggage. Packets linked Harwich to Briel in Holland and Brighton with Dieppe. The Dover-Calais run, the most popular, left Dover on Wednesdays and Saturdays, returning on Tuesdays and Fridays. Packets were described as small but well-appointed ships, with spacious cabins and bunk beds, complete with clean white linen. But then passengers could expect to spend quite long periods of time in them. The journey took anything from four hours to nine days, and the passage cost between 10 and 12 livres. The Dover-Calais run did indeed have the shortest journey time, potentially, but we now know, of course, the effects of being the narrowest point of the English Channel, which was fed by the meeting of the North Sea and the North Atlantic currents and weather systems. The weather was varied with storms and periods of complete becalming. Diarist Samuel Pepys remarked in his diary that sailing is like being in prison with the option of drowning. Many passengers on the packet would have agreed with him as their craft without stabilizers continuously rolled or pitched. At the other extreme, you could also end up becalmed for days. Even if the weather systems were on your side, you were still under the influence of tides. At low tide, outside Calais, you could find yourself paying up to a guinea to struggle into a small French craft to reach the shore. Your luggage would be often dumped in a, in a heap ashore, perhaps some distance away, for which you also paid. After being deposited quite a distance from your destination and paying for the privilege, well, possibly you might have wondered if the option of sailing over on a private boat hire for five guineas 
was actually a good idea. Once on land, you might still have challenges. If the weather had delayed your passage, you might find yourself arriving after dark when the city gates were locked. This was when a passport proved its worth. You would have to convince the watchman and guards who manned them that you were fit to be let in. Hogarth's painting, The Gates of Calais in 1748, is a case in point. The artist came to Calais and decided to sketch the arms of England, which were displayed on the old city gate and was promptly arrested as a spy. Along with a friend, one Francis Heyman, the two were attempting to draw some views of fortifications when they were seized and thrown into prison before being sent back to England. The picture does, however, give us an idea of what city gates and the portcullis looked like and also how well they were guarded. Hence, if you arrived after dark, when the gates were locked, your comfortable pre-booked bed plus delicious meal and wine would go untouched as you trudged around looking for a bed in a small dingy inn on the outskirts. But of course, when you woke up the next morning, warm and dry on solid land, well, that was all in the past. You had made it safely and Paris awaited with new and exciting experiences. Travellers were undoubtedly also happy to learn that as French roads were considered poor, there was plenty of river and canal transport on barges. This raised the question, should you buy your own coach now for your travels? Uh, the possibilities and challenges were endless. So to find out more, join us next time to learn just why knowledge of the courant was vital in Paris society, how to keep calm as you were carried on and over the Alps in a bath chair, and which was the best mask for the purposes of seduction at the Venetian Carnival, a bientôt, and ciao.